Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in April. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Several years ago, writer Paisley Rectal created a digital community project that mapped the people, places, buildings, and events that define Salt Lake City. And when she became a Utah's poet laureate, she decided to build on this idea and create a literary map for the entire state, mapping literary Utah. Paisley Rectal says she hopes the project helps people make connections, not only about how literary works in Utah are related, but also with people who created those works and who share the same home state. Paisley Rectal is a distinguished professor at University of Utah. She became Utah's Poet Laureate in 2017. In 2019, she received the Academy of American Poets Poets Laureate Fellowship. And Paisley Rectal's books include The Broken Country, a Trauma, a Crime, and a Continuing the Legacy of Vietnam, and Nightingale, um, which rewrites many of the myths of Ovid's Metamorphoses uh, and many other books. Uh, Paisley Rectal, welcome back to the uh, program. Hi, thank you so much for having me again. Uh, you bet. So, um, as we do, I think, every day, uh, <laughs> on the on air and, and, and off air, how are you doing with the pandemic? Well, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm doing uh, probably as well as you can, can do. Um, luckily, being a raider and being an only child has trained me for just exactly this moment, I think. So, um, I'm used to being... Uh, alone and entertaining myself, and um, so it's 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 been okay that way. And I've luckily had a whole bunch of deadlines that I've had to meet, so the the quarantine has allowed me to really focus in on those and get those done. And there's no excuses now. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, has uh, imagine you're continuing or finishing up what you what you had been writing. It has uh, has the subject matter changed at all? In, in in your poetry or anything? Not so much. Um, I'm uh, I was working on a book on cultural appropriation in literature, and I just turned that in, and then to my editor, and I'm waiting to get the copy edits back. And um, then I was the guest editor for Best American Poetry 2020, which is coming out in September. So I was rewriting the introduction to that, and that I did actually have to go back and change um, from. What my introduction originally was, I wrote the introduction in December, and then I got the copy edits back just this month, and I realized it just sounded so anachronistic that I had to rewrite it in light of, um, in light of this virus. So, uh, you know, I guess in that sense, it's changed me. But I haven't been writing a lot of poetry, to be honest. I've, I, I think, I think maybe like a lot of people, I'm still trying to process what's going on. So I don't actually feel like I can write poetry directly about my experience of it. Mm. That's interesting, uh, because the I guess the popular conception would be you, as a poet, as a writer, you would process through writing, but you're not ready yet. Yeah, not really. I did write one poem very recently, actually. Um, I think it is, I mean, obviously it is very much um, inspired by this pandemic, but it's actually about Joan of England in the 14th century. She was the daughter of um, Edward III, I think, and she was being um, sent uh, to the continent to go and marry uh, one of the princes of of Europe. Um, I think it was the Spanish prince, Pedro, and she died in 1348, the year of the Black Plague, and she died on her ship in Bordeaux, and so I wrote a poem from her perspective. Um, and and it's uh, it's in, it's very much a poem about confinement and not wanting to speculate about the future entirely because 
she doesn't want to admit to herself just what's going on outside her ship. So, mm. I mean, I think that's pretty much the closest I can get to my own experience, um, but that's about it. Yeah. Do, do, do you have that or something else you could read us? I do actually have that poem here. Yeah. Um, so I can read it, and it is very new, so um, um, <laughs> I don't know about some of the lines, but... So it's called Joan of England, Bordeaux, 1348. Riding skirts of silk and velvet... Saddles, beds, a set of buttons, corsets of gold and a fur tippet green and red with rosy arbors. A world of beauty is locked up in these ships with her, dry dock now in Bordeaux. The sea glitters outside her window. No one's come to greet her. Servants should bring up wine and milk, lay out her silks, stroke smooth their crescents engrossed with gold. The pearl moon panels of her corset soon to be loosened by a husband's, not a maid's hand now. But she is alone. She is never alone. Always some courtier, priest, or supplicant whining at her elbow. She stares at the dead-eyed sea and listens to the absent cries of harbor master and children, the silenced cart and mute fishermen. The sky is clear of smoke. Garbage ripens the August air. Why does no one come to lead her to the prince her father promised? Her father who laughed once at her love of clothes, the roses she grew, and the little dog she taught to dance beside her feet. He thought the world was tethered only to power. Now stifling, alone, she knows the only power left is beauty. Should she believe in something else? Her cheeks are flushed. A strange tight knot has risen at her throat. Outside her window, masked figures scurry, an embroidery of birds wheeling above them. They look so much more magnificent out at sea. Why not trust beauty? She slips her betrothed's enamel face beneath her tongue to cool and fill herself with her father's promise that the world she loves and knows will last forever, that when she rides out to meet her future husband, she'll wear the velvet sewn with hearts and lift her hand, lift her veil, and he will see her then clearly for himself. Will he think her beautiful she raises up her face? Will he kiss her and clasp her hands? Will he hold her by the waist? I am not made of enamel, she thinks, in the cold sea below her buckles. How will he touch her when they meet? What names will he call? And will he lead her home? It's all that she can bear to wonder. Hmm. So that's that's the poem of Joan of England that I wrote, and um, she dies in Bordeaux, actually, and she is not sent home. She is cremated there with all of the dead. So this is a poem that takes place with her basically trapped on her ship and not knowing why, obviously, anyone is coming to get her and not being able to admit to herself what's happening on shore. So, yeah. It's a happy poem. <laughs> happy. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a cheerful poem about there you, the pandemic. <laughs> there, there you go. Well, and appropriate, right? So isolation and, and maybe... Uh, a bit of denial. I think we can yeah. we can relate to those themes. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think for me, the toughest part, maybe for a lot of people, is not knowing what's going to happen and wanting to think about the future and then maybe not wanting to think about the future because, um, you know, maybe the future is going to be great and maybe, maybe things will go back to a kind of normal. Um, or maybe they're going to get even worse and, and <clears throat> no one knows. I, and, and I think there is a sort of denial sometimes, at least for me. So, um, 
And of course, you know, one of the lines that I wrote in the poem, you know, the world she loves and knows will last forever. I mean, I think that's something that we all want, right? The, the world that we find really comfortable and, and the world that we've grown to love and, and feel like we have a place in. And now that it's shifting, you know, what does that mean for us? I mean, is it gone forever or do we, do, does, it, does it continue in some way? And obviously, if it continues in some way, um, how do we change? And we don't know. Mm. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's hard, isn't it? Uh, holding that unknown. We, we do like certainty in some ways. I would prefer certainty right yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> I would feel yeah. very much happier with certainty, yeah. <laughs> I wonder, uh, you know, as a writer, writing, I imagine um, the actual doing of it is, is, is a lonely pursuit, right? But writing is, uh, is writing an act of reaching out? Is it, you know, there, there is connection desired there, isn't there? I think so, yeah. I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think a lot of people now um, are turning more and more, obviously, to books, um, to literature, to poetry, because I think they're looking for that kind of connection, and they recognize that the, the voice of poetry, maybe more than almost any other kind of literary form, feels the most intimate. And so when we can't actually reach out and touch each other, I think we are longing for that kind of emotional intimacy that um, suggests... Um, that connection, that kind of touch. And, and poetry, I think, has been on the forefront of a lot of people's minds in surprising ways, people who might never have been interested in poetry before. And um, some people are writing it now, which is great. Some people are reading it now, which is also great. Um, so I think writers have always been writing for the idea of a readership, and now it's become sort of more in our own minds. I know from sort of reaching out to other writers on Zoom or seeing them on Facebook and Twitter talking about this. You know, there's such a hunger <clears throat> to, for people to sort of share their work um, now in so many different ways, not just publishing more, but reading their, their poems and, you know, and videotaping themselves and sending them to schools and things like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's tapping into a, a, a latent desire in, in all of us to connect. Mm. You, you mentioned maybe some people are jumping into writing poetry. That I mean, that that would be a nice uh, yeah, a silver I think lining so. here. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think it'd be nice that more people feel uh, comfortable with poetry and um, and turn to it. And, and I mean, poetry can be very soothing for a lot of people. For me, it's not been that way, largely because I've not turned to it for any kind of therapeutic need that way. But one of the things I do find really terrific about poetry, and just writing in general, whether it's poetic or not, is oftentimes you don't know what you think or believe until you sit down and start writing out something that you remember. And then you come to a conclusion you never could have come to before unless you know your creativity had spurred you into it. And so it is a way of of coming to new conclusions about yourself and um, and then, and the people around you, and sometimes that can be comforting, sometimes that can be discomforting, but oftentimes it's very revelatory. So I hope as many people you know engage with this as possible. What's your advice? Maybe somebody listening, thinking, "If I, I, I have some extra time in my hands, <laughs> and maybe <laughs> maybe I want to jump into writing. I've always maybe wanted to do this, but I feel a little nervous about doing it. What's your advice?" Well, um, there's a bunch of uh, things that I would suggest. One, I always bring this up. There's a, a Japanese uh, woman named Sei Shanagon. She lived in around like the ninth century uh, A.D., first 
1080. And she basically uh, was, you know, a, a court maid at this, you know, the Empress's, Empress's Court um, in Japan. And she just kept this little book called The Pillow Book. And this book is basically just like a list of observations, little anecdotes, snippets of poetry. And it's just an amazing book. But what I think is great about it and a, a good model for people to try now is that there's something very spontaneous and casual about it. She's not trying to launch herself into writing a great novel or a <clears throat> short story, even a complete poem. She's just observing the details around her. And they're always surprising and quite amazing. And, and as the things around us change so quickly and new things are kind of appearing and new human behaviors, there's more animals out, the skies are clearer. There's lots of opportunities, I think, for people to just take notes and make lists. That's what she was really famous for doing, making lists of things. So some of her famous lists were things like um, hateful things and um, things that things that uh, cause the heart to beat faster and things that give delight. And then, you know, some of the things that give delight are like a very black cat with a very white belly or... <laughs> smell of perfume on silk, you know, like, you know, these surprising, very sensual images. And I think that's a great way for people to start is to collect the images that they see around them and just keep lists of them. And um, they can always return to them and maybe, you know, do something with that as well. And the other thing that's great to try um, if you are interested in poetry is poetry has so many different forms. Sistinas and villanelles and sonnets and you know if you just look up um, poetic forms like on the Poetry Foundation website, um, they'll give you a whole list and they'll give you rules. And sometimes it's a lot of fun to just say, "I'm going to write about an animal, and I'm going to write a sistina about an animal I remember seeing." And sometimes giving yourself these two prompts will create and spark this idea of playfulness. And um, oftentimes it's through constraint that can, we can be really, really creative. And so that's. Those are the two things I would suggest: lists and forms. Yeah, that's uh, that's great advice. Um, so you you said that uh, you don't, uh, or at least right now, you're not reading poetry for therapeutic purposes. Are are, are there other forms? Is are you using literature of any kind for therapeutic purposes? I'm using novels as a th- <laughs> for for therapeutic purposes because novels really, because they're so obviously involved in the story that they. They take me <clears throat> outside of my own situation, and I'm able to, uh, you know, disappear into them even more so than when when poems. Because with poems, oftentimes, I'm thinking about <laughs> what the poet did to create this line and with that image, and I'm looking at it like a craftsperson. But with a novel, because I don't write novels, I'm I'm free. <laughs> I'm free to just truly sit back and relax and enjoy. And um, so. I mean, I still definitely am reading a lot of poetry. I mean, I always am reading poetry. But I I find that novels are more soothing right now, largely because I can forget myself. Mm-hmm. So escape is part of it? Escape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find myself doing the same thing. Hopefully it's healthy escape, right? Yeah, what are you reading? Um, I'm... Uh, for, uh, <laughs> I'm loath to admit it. I'm, I'm reading uh, romances. Oh, you know, it's so funny that you say that because <laughs> I went through a period where I was reading romance novels and um, I was also reading, I also love horror genre uh, ah, novels yeah. too. So one of the things that I'm reading is actually a collection of um, 
horror short stories. And and I know that people think that genre is something that you're supposed to be ashamed of. But honestly, I mean, genre works. Like, we like these novels because they have particular effects on us. Mm-hmm. So there's no there's no reason to be ashamed in, in, in these things because you're like, well, they, they, they're written for, to provide these effects, and if you want those effects, it's great because, you know, it, there's nothing worse than going to a horror movie and not being scared, I think. You know, like, you went to go get scared, so you might as well get the experience that they promise. Yeah. I love genre novels. Um, they, I mean, some of the, and even, even a lot of mid-list fiction or, like, quote-unquote, high literary fiction now is sampling from so many of these different genre novels uh, because, you know, we like them. We, we respond to them. Yeah. And I, I guess for me, you know, it is an escape. And also it's, uh, you, you, you know, there's happy ending, right? And so during these times, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's what's so comforting about the romance novel, right? Like yeah. if, if they didn't end up together, you'd want your money back. Yeah, you're exactly. like, wait, no, that's, that, that's, that's not supposed to happen. Yeah. So. I should say I'm reading biography. I always read biography. I love biography. Um, but, but it seems more respectable. But, but now... I, it's like a note from the doctor. I have on tape Utah's poet laureate uh, telling me that it, I shouldn't be ashamed. So, you know, I, the thing that I'm always sad about with literature is I think people we all come to reading through genre, and then as we get older, we're sort of taught to be ashamed of our reading delights. Um, and the reality is there are better and worse books. There's no, there's no way around that. I mean, even within genres, there are better and worse books, right? Some writers just have more talent. But, I mean, you're reading, and I don't, I don't see why we should be ashamed of the things that, that we like if they give us pleasure. And, and they, they certainly do teach us something about empathy, and they do sort of at least give us a sense of connection. And, and they, they work our imaginations. And right now, I mean, really, honestly, <laughs> what else do we need? Yeah, work our imaginations, right? Uh, so what uh, maybe you could uh, tell us some some things you're reading yet uh, Paisley Rectal's pandemic reading list what uh... <laughs> well I mean a lot of people don't necessarily like horror um, so I I will um, probably say but I, I am reading this book called um, growing things and other stories by Paul Tremblay and those are horror stories the novel I'm really getting into right now is the glass hotel by um, she wrote uh, Station Eleven, Emily St. John Mandel, and um, I had read Station Eleven, and that's that's actually about the um, about a pandemic, <laughs> um, so I didn't want to reread that. But the Glass Hotel, interestingly, is about uh, Ponzi schemes and also about people trying to escape their past. So um, that's pretty interesting. I love David Mitchell's. Uh, writing, and so I just got his new book, Black Swan Green, and I got it from um, this wonderful, all these books from this wonderful bookstore called The Printed Garden, um, and he mailed them to me, so kind to do that. And then for poetry, I'm reading a book that probably no one's going to want to read based on the title alone. It's called Doomstead Days <laughs> by Brian Tier. Um, and then I'm rereading um, some poems by a woman who just recently passed away. Her name is Even Boland. She's an Irish poet, and she was very influential. And it was a big surprise to a lot of us that she died of a stroke at her home in Dublin. So I'm rereading some of her poems, too. Yeah, those sound wonderful. Um, uh, just briefly back to horror, uh, it wouldn't seem obvious to me, you know, during during times of stress that you would read horror. What what does that do for you? I I think yeah, no, I think it's probably a bad choice on my part. But I think one of the things that I like about it is that I want to be scared by something I know that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And um, 
right now, of course, I think all of us are scared of things that really could potentially exist. And generally the horror I tend to like uh, verges into more of the psychological thriller um, and sometimes the supernatural. And both of those, both of those feel kind of weirdly safe to me. Um, I don't tend to like um, things that are too realistic. So I know that there's a novel that just came out written by a, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who who wrote a novel about a pandemic, and and it's supposed to be really good, but there's no way I'm reading that book. Mm. There's just no way I'm reading that book. Um, yeah, so there's something about horror, and especially the supernatural horror, that makes me feel uh, oddly comforted. Mm-hmm. Just maybe another question on the on the pandemic, and, and we'll take a break, get, get into talking about uh, mapping literary Utah. Um, so you're teaching online at this point? I guess, it, you know, finals and probably the semester's over, but um, that that's that's a big change, going to online. That was a big change, yeah. Yeah, we did go online. Our classes are finished now. Um, it was tough to, to, to change a writing course around um, the way we had to. So, uh, but we managed to do it, and I don't know if the students um, are as happy with the class as they could be, because I think they had said that they really loved the in-class discussions, and you can run them over Zoom. It just doesn't feel quite the same. So I'm, I'm preparing um, to teach uh, online in the fall. We, it hasn't been announced, and it may not happen, but I don't want to be caught unawares again. So I'm trying to figure out what worked well from this semester, what can I change up so in case we do teach online in the fall, um, I can, I can <laughs> make, make a creative writing class really work well online. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's another unknown. We you, we just don't know, right? How how it's going to look in the fall. Um, that and that's interesting. I've been. I think we've all been experiencing this as well. There's, uh, you know, you try to appro- Zoom can approximate it. You can see a person's face. You can hear their voice. Uh, it's just not the same. Yeah, no, it's exhausting to watch people on Zoom because you're also watching yourself, and you realize like. Um, you move your mouth in a funny way when you say certain words. Your hair is always askew. And, and then people go into sneezing fits and dogs walk in and out of rooms. And <laughs> my husband, like, comes up for food. or It's just it's a constant parade of distractions. So Yeah, I've noticed that as well. It is, it is stressful watching myself on the Zoom screen as well. I'd, I'd prefer not to. Yeah, exactly. Most of us would rather not watch ourselves. Yeah. Well, let's take a break. Come back. We'll we'll talk. We'll get into talking about mapping literary Utah, an ambitious new project, and uh, that is launched now. And uh, we're talking with Paisley Rectal. She's Utah's poet laureate. She's distinguished professor at University of Utah, and uh, author of, uh, of several books. The website, uh, by the way, is uh, is it? Let's see. I've pulled this up here. PaisleyRectal.com. Is it? Um, yeah, and it's the website is www.mappingliteraryutah.org. Okay, very good. Uh, more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cash Grand Fondo Bike Ride, Friday and Saturday, July 10th and 11th, with safety modifications to keep riders, volunteers, and community safe. Details and registration available at cashgrandfondo.com. This is Science by the Slice. Power in Numbers. USU biologist Will Pierce is using data from the National Science Foundation's massive National Ecology Observatory Network to look into the future. 
With information collected from the coast-to-coast -coast network known as NEON, Pierce will use evolutionary history to address practical ecological challenges, including wildfire, pest beetle outbreaks in forests, and insect-borne diseases. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in April. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're spending the hour with Utah's Poet Laureate Paisley Rectal. She is also a distinguished professor at the University of Utah, and uh, she received 2019 Academy of American Poets Poet Laureate uh, Fellowship. And uh, her books uh, include The Night My Mother Met Bruce Lee, A Crash of Rhinos, Six Girls Without Pants, The Invention of the Kaleidoscope, Animal Eye, uh, The Broken Country, uh, a book about... Uh, uh, related to Vietnam, and a uh, new collection of poems, Nightingale. And Paisley Rectal, you said uh, you've you've sent in uh, your book on cultural appropriation. Yes. It's called Appropriate or Appropriate a Provocation. It depends on how you want to pronounce it. Yeah, so that'll be out uh, next year, I guess? That'll be out, yeah. And, I mean, barring complete and total collapse, um, which, you know, hey, fingers crossed. Yeah. Uh, February 2021, yes. Okay, we'll look, we'll look forward to that one. Um, so uh, let's start with moving toward Mapping Literary Utah. Uh, tell me about um, the, the previous project, uh, Mapping Salt Lake City. So many years ago, I was teaching a nonfiction class, and I wanted to do something uh, around digital writing. So um, I created a class called Mapping Salt Lake City, and um, it was a nonfiction class where a bunch of students were basically going to create projects that were going to be published on a website that maps the people, places, and things, events that have taken place in Salt Lake City but may not be here anymore. Um, they could do photographic essays. Um, they could do personal essays or uh, what I were calling this was here essays about uh, people, places, or things that once were in Salt Lake that are gone. But the idea that it was that, that we would create a website and a, a map of Salt Lake City, and these projects and essays would be tagged to particular locations on this map. And that if you wanted to, as a, as a reader, you could go around and basically get a tour of the city through literature. And we wanted to make it um, basically a community kind of created web archive as well. So we opened up a call, and people from the communi community um, and did and, and still actually send in work and send in submissions, and we tag them as we get them. And, um, and it was great, and I really loved it, and it was l fantastic to hear people's memories and see uh, people's creative um, retellings, sort of creative histories about this place. And Salt Lake City is such an unusual um, city in some respects, uh, both its historical founding and then, of course, uh, the many different kind of communities that have made this place a home. And I should also say that I got this idea for this class and, and this website originally from a writer named Rebecca Solnit, who created this really beautiful book called Infinite City, um, which uh, mapped basically um, San Francisco, and it, and it married uh, visual art to, um, 
do writing and storytelling, and so there were maps that put two or you know two or three different kinds of narratives together. Um, so, for instance, the history of gay bars in San Francisco, and then also the migratory paths that monarch butterflies took. And she would they'd create a map about that, and they would write an essay about it. And I thought, well, you know, San Francisco is a great town, obviously that that is a rich history. But I think San, you know Salt Lake has an opportunity as well. So. You know, I wanted to do this on the on a website because that way we could make it much more community accessible and much more uh, community written. So uh, I I completed that many many years ago. I think 2011 or something, 2010. And um, when I was uh, made poet laureate, I thought it would be nice to do that on a grander scale uh, to map Utah, but. Rather than having people write in their memories of Utah, I would try to put um, all of the different writers uh, onto basically a map of Utah, and so that people <clears throat> who live here or who are just interested in Utah's cultural histories could come and sort of see which writers lived where, also read a little bit of their work, uh, learn something from them from their biographical you know information that's on the website. So the site basically archives uh, Utah writers, past and present. Um, we include fiction writers of all the genres, uh, creative nonfiction writers, so memoirists and personal essayists and people who are working in hybrid forms, uh, poets and um, playwrights. We also feature slam poetry, the Utah State Poetry Society, and cowboy poets, and also Native American storytellers. So we really try to get a wide swath of different people who have really created Utah's very rich literary uh, culture. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a pretty ambitious project, and the great thing about a website is, of course, we can continue to add more writers. And so we're always looking for more names, uh, more people. We approached about 200, over 200 writers, living writers, and we got about a 50% response, a little less than 50% response. Um, and, of course, I did some research on uh, past or deceased Utah writers or writers attached to Utah, and uh, we put a lot of those biographies up also on the site. Um, so I notice uh, uh, you say you include videos of slam poets and oral storytellers. That makes sense. That, that's how they should be experienced, right? It is. Um, the, uh, you know, the reality of the site is that we wanted to um, obviously include as many people as possible. Um, and there are some modes of performance that don't lend themselves to conventional publication. You know, the vast majority of writers end up or try to get a book or two or something like that. But if you're a performance poet or a cowboy poet, you may not really fetishize having a, a published book. It's about that performance. And then partly these videos are good because then you can really, you know, you get to delight in what they do really well, which is, you know, have these you know, fantastic kind of memorized poems um, and these these personal performances that are sometimes really just quite riveting. And uh, podcast memoirists. Yes, we do have a podcast memoirist. We've got Scott Carrier on there, and um, we include uh, work samples by pretty much everyone. Um, and so with Scott Carrier, what's great is that This American Life had done an entire hour just devoted to the stories that he had done. 
uh, that he's created for their um, their program. And so we basically archived that. So anyone can go there and can just get a whole hour of Scott Carrier stories. Stories, and then of course it links to people's own websites and um, you know interviews and readings they've done. And so we also have links to um, um, Home of the Brave, which is Scott Carrier's podcast. So you can you can hear more of them. And what we want to do is become a sort of you know. Um, a hub where people can get more information about writers and then go off and do more research and, and really immerse themselves in, in the, the work that, you know, they've been intrigued by. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does Mapping Literary Utah not include? Well, Mapping Literary Utah, unfortunately, does not include people who are writing specifically um, non-literary or what is genres that are not perceived to be primarily literary. So we do not include, unfortunately, historians. We do not include um, uh, biographers. We do not include um, science writing, sports writing, um, self-help, cookbook writers or things like that. Um, that. That was a really tough call for us because, obviously, there's so many wonderful historians that have come from this place. Um, if if the historian wrote even one novel or a memoir, then you know some something more creative, then we would archive that person. What we're going to do is create. We also to get around some of these problems, we have uh, little essays, very short essays that kind of give a tour of a literary culture in Utah. So we have one on the literary legacy of Topaz. For example, we have one on environmental writing in Utah. We have one um, that's a profile of Orson Scott Card and uh, young adult writing. So we're going to do an essay on um, Utah historians because we've had a number of very notable ones. Will Bagley, obviously, Juanita Brooks, Bernard DeVoto. Um, and so we can feature and talk about the, these, these writers' work. If you just joined us, we're talking with Utah Poet Laureate Paisley Rectal. Uh, her new project is Mapping Literary Utah, and uh, that is up uh, now. Uh, so uh, mappingliteraryutah.org is where you can go. Um, so one of the problems is um, determining what is Utah, what isn't, right? So a writer is a writer, how connected is a writer to Utah? So you say you'd... Uh, it didn't include Mark Twain, though he, you know, set some of his writing in Utah, but it did include Edward Abbey, for example. Right. Yeah, um, we decided not to include people who might have just visited the state on vacation and wrote about it, um, because that would probably also be enormous for our archive. We were more interested in archiving people who have identified themselves as having you know, lived here at least for some period of their creative time, uh, and, and that the state made some uh, impact on the writing. So Edward Abbey makes sense, even though he didn't spend a lot of time in Moab. I mean, when, when he created Desert Solitaire, I mean, that's not only a classic of environmental writing, um, it is a deeply attached uh, book to Utah. I think when most people think of Utah, they think of Desert Solitaire. So even though he spent, you know, I think maybe less than two years, less than a year even, um, in Utah proper, I think it would be kind of strange to assume that somehow that, you know, his attachment to Utah was not profound in his own creative development um, and also in the development of Utah's literature. 
we leave it to people to identify themselves as Utah writers, which is why I think we didn't get like 100% um, uh, I guess acceptance or in, you know participation in the pro, um, project when I approached people. I think a lot of people wrote me back and said, "I don't know if I really should qualify as a Utah writer. I don't write about the state." And I said, "It doesn't really matter if you write what you write about. I mean, were you born here? Did you reside here, or do you reside here? Um, and you know, do you identify in any way as coming from the state? And if you do, that's all that it takes." Um, I am actually more excited by having a lot of different voices of people coming, writing about whatever they want and, and saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm from Utah, I live here. And so that people can see that, you know, to be a Utah writer is, it, is sort of <laughs> um, a very wide and in some ways meaningless kind of designation because everyone writes about anything that they're interested in. I've lived in Utah for um, 17 years now, and uh, I, I never write about this state, really. So, um, you know, would I not be considered a Utah writer? I consider myself, obviously, a Utah resident. So, I mean, I, I think it's important for people to see that there's such a wide variety of topics and subjects that Utah writers have taken up. What do you, uh, what's the goal? What do you hope happens? This is now launched and it'll be going forward. What do you... What are the goals? What do you hope happens? Well, one of the things I'm hoping for, I've, I've got three goals. The first is I'm really hoping to get more people visiting the site and giving me names of people who should be on the site. Um, we have to use rely a lot on word of mouth. Um, I'm hoping to do more essays as well to spotlight um, authors and literary movements in Utah that might people might not be aware about of and things like that. I want to do focus essays on the LGBTQ scene, uh, the comic book scene, historians in Utah, the Asian Pacific Islander literary scene, so things like that, so people can get a, a, a more diverse and, and broad sense of all the literary things that are taking place in Utah. So those are two things. Um, and the third thing I want going forward is um, I want people, especially younger readers, especially younger readers who might want to become writers, to look at this site and see that it's possible for them to become writers as well. Um, when I was growing up in Seattle many, many years ago, when Seattle was not considered a great place to be from, and I wanted to be a poet, my dad gave me anthologies, poetry anthologies. Um, and I looked at the biographies of the writers, and all of them were from the East Coast, and all of them had gone to Harvard, and all of them had, you know, had these very fancy and what seemed like, to me, very privileged lives. And I thought, there's no way I could possibly be a poet. And so I kind of labored on in obscurity, thinking I was the only one like me. And what I really uh, enjoy doing as poet laureate is going to K-12 through schools and meeting young kids, many of whom, you know, are just interested in writing and just, you know, want some new experience. But some really, really want to be writers, and you can tell. And, and they're hungry, and they ask questions about what it's like to become a writer. And I can't go to every school in Utah. And it would be nice for schools in Utah to be able to see this site and share it with their students so that, that, that the people who want to be writers can say, I, I can do that. I, there's people like me in my own community who have done this. And um, I think one of the cultural narratives about Utah is that we're flyover country. You know, all the literary stuff happens in New York or San Francisco or L.A., and um, there's nothing in the middle of the country. 
And even when I go and do readings, like in New York, and when I go out to different, you know, of the big flashy cities, a lot of them are like, how can you possibly live in Utah? And I, and I, I frankly get really frustrated and sick of that. I want people to be proud of their state. I want people to be proud of the raiders that come from here. And I want people to be to feel like this is a world that they can enter to. And so that's my final goal with the site. Mm-hmm. Yeah, role models are very important, aren't they? Uh, you, yeah. you, you mentioned your experience, and that if, if you can't see yourself in, in that dream, then it's very hard. Yeah, it just it makes it a little bit harder. It doesn't make it impossible. It just mm-hmm. makes it it makes it feel lonelier. And I don't think that the students should feel lonely in their desire to be writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's take another break. We'll come back with uh, Utah Poet Laureate Paisley Rectal. The new project is Mapping Literary Utah. And uh, I believe, Paisley Rectal, you have uh, a piece or two you can read to us from, from the, the site or writers connected. So we'll, we'll have that after, after this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And Cafe Ibis. The Gallery Deli is currently closed. Ibis coffee beans available at cafeibis.com. Pick up at the roasting plant or delivery. Also available at local grocers and Cash Valley Restaurant Delivery.com. Hi, it's Francis Lamb, and this week, it's a pepper party. From a hot sauce tasting that had me calling for my mother, to the best chiles rellenos you might ever have, to a magical little pepper powder from France, of all places, it's a chili world, and we just live in it. That's a Splendid Table from APM American Public Media. Tune in for the Splendid Table Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Join us here on Utah Public Radio throughout the week for Utah State University Extension's Ask an Expert, featuring timely information from raising your own backyard chickens to keeping our waterways clean and tips promoting mental wellness at work. If you've missed the latest segment for the week, you can find all the Ask an Expert features on our website, upr.org, and on our UPR app. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in April. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're spending the hour with Utah Poet Laureate Paisley Rectal. She's a distinguished professor at the University of Utah. And uh, the current project is Mapping Literary Utah, uh, which you can find uh, at uh, mappingliteraryutah.org. And that is up and available now. Uh, making uh, help uh, quoted uh, in an interview with uh, UPR, our news director, uh, Maddie Mortensen, uh, Paisley Recto says she hopes the project helps people make connections not only about how literary works in Utah are related, but also with people who created those works and who share the home, uh, same home state. Uh, so before we jump into um, some uh, some readings here, I want to read this, uh, which came in on our website, um, and this in response to uh, Maddie's story. Uh, this is uh, Lynn Floyd. He says, Hi, I'm a poet in southwest Utah and am the beneficiary of the mentoring efforts of many poets in our area, Laverna Johnson, Gary Christian, both in their 90s now, who have given much to encourage the appreciation and development of poetry in our area through their service with Utah State Poetry Society and individually in our community. I'm worried that because these individuals are not college graduates in English and self-published that they will be overlooked. 
Utah State Poetry Society, founded in 1950, has encouraged poets both within the higher education and public areas. Uh, see utahpoets.com about. Uh, the original poets in Utah were individuals gifted in language, but not always college trained. That is, Eliza R. Snow, Emmeline B. Wells, etc., and should be included in the development of what later poets build upon in Utah. Also, songwriters and hymns were in our poetry. Just a suggestion and compliments on sharing, starting such a far-reaching project that needs to be done. And then Lynn uh, writes back in, poets, both with diplomas and naturally developed. So that's uh, Lynn in southwest Utah with some ideas. <laughs> I've been in contact with her, and I wish she had sent me that email um, as well to me, uh, because those names would be really, really helpful as well. So um, we do feature the Utah State Poetry Society. Um, it is on our website. And um, so, you know, she's right. We need more representation of everybody. There is one slight problem, which is um, we do not um, archive self-published writers, and the reason we don't do that is because um, then the site would truly be flooded with a lot of different writers and of a lot of different um, questions about um, whether or not, and it's not a question about quality, it is a question to a certain extent about um, quantity at this point, I and mean, we want to make sure that we're featuring as many poets and writers as we can, and absolutely, but we also have to say that um, if somebody is publishing their work at Kinko's or they're paying for their publications, that might not necessarily um, be something we want to archive in the same way as, it, you know, someone from a small press or university press or commercial press, right? Um, we're looking to a certain extent um, for people to already have gone through a kind of peer review process. Um, so the way for me to get around that, because I was very aware that this would, this would hurt people from the Utah State Poetry Society, as well as the slam poets and the cowboy poets, um, what I wanted to do was do these spotlights. If, if Lynn would go to the spotlight section, she would see, in fact, we do spotlight the Utah State Poetry Society, and we have a number of Utah State poets that are performing their work. Um, some of them are self-published, and some of them are not, you know, have no book-length collection at all, but have published individually. So, um, you know, that, you know, it's a fair criticism at the same time, you know, I think <laughs> we, we've actually sort of tried to address it. Um, one of the things that uh, also happened was the coronavirus uh, made it impossible for us to travel. So we have not been able to take videos with um, Utah State Poetry Society members who are further afield. Um, as soon as the travel ban is lifted, we can certainly do that. But, um, you know, the, you know, when we have a website like this, it can't get everybody immediately. It's, and that's the beauty of a website. It can grow. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks, Lynn, for, the, for that and those, those good ideas. Uh, so I think you have a, a piece or two that you can read for us, Paige Directo? Yes. Yeah, so I want to... Let's, uh, um, there you go. Is you, it April? Uh, well, you, you faded away a little bit there, but you're back. Oh, I was going to say, is um, are we still in April? I can't even remember anymore. Uh, we are, we are um, the, the last day of April, yes. Okay. Good, because I prepared three different poems that I would like to read um, 
today because it is um, National Poetry Month. And so I want to celebrate three of the poets on our website. The first one is Tacey Atsidi. She's a young Navajo poet, um, and she's up here now in Salt Lake City, but she's originally from, I think, um, northern Utah. This is uh, a poem of hers on our site called Sonnet for My Wrist. I tend to mistake your ribs for a hand towel. It hangs on a nail above the washbowl, the hand towel ripped. There's something wearing about the end curve of thread. When I sleep, I keep my palms open. Verve, we were lovers in a field of gray. In Navajo, we say something rote, all radical when you hurt me something close, even you waft. It's best I tether, forget flyaways I plucked. My bones, they lay to me like fray, like gaunt. I don't crawl back for fragments, even a spinal cord of sinew. It's not going to close. You rope me from stray to grip. It's all for naught. I'm born for my father, tangle people, our mouths and webs. Tonight my wrists part, and you chase my insides until they dangle into pieces. I think it's such a beautiful poem. Mm, it has such strange use of language, and mm-hmm. it's just really, I, I really love it. The second poem I want to read is actually by Ken Brewer, who was actually um, the second poet laureate of Utah. Um, and he taught up at Utah State University for 32 years. And to a certain extent, um, Mapping Literary Utah wouldn't have come about at all except for um, something that he planted, a sort of seed he planted many, many years ago when, in 2003, his hope was to create a long-lasting record for future scholars and teachers interested in writers in Utah by videotaping um, Utah writers where they lived. So he wanted to travel across the state and, and take these videotapes of different poets reading. Um, and he died in 2006 from pancreatic cancer before that project could be completed. So I just really want to tip my hat to Ken Brewer um, for, for starting that, um, for thinking of that kind of archival project. Um, and we all owe a debt to him for that. So this is his poem, Night Song. Whatever cries in the night, whatever darts, crawls, dives, names the dark and moves closer to brightness, kindled or candled, or triggered by human fingers into light. Boatmen drag the marsh, Lanterns and flashlights prow and stern. Shadows float like wings on water. Orlocks grind wood on metal. Small outboards sputter. The black-crowned night heron quacks, glares red-eyed from the reeds as suddenly quiet boats drift. Searchers, ripe with awful expectation, lean into darkness and listen. I think it's such a, a quiet... Mm beautiful poem, and it really captures that sense of, of night and the sounds that night makes and, um, and that mysterious sense of those boats drifting out there. I think it's really quite a lovely poem. Yeah, that's beautiful. The last one I want to read is another short one by um, a woman named Kimberly Johnson. She teaches at BYU. She's an amazing poet. Um, this is a short poem called Matins for the Last Frost. Patient in their di- dark hibernacle Wait the twinned lobes of the tulip bulb hanging like a semicolon in the endless sentence of winter. Not yet the green shaft rips the paper tunic in its upward thrust. Not yet knifes its tip through the topsoil, the stalk aspiring up to a swelling of petals, pale bud pursed 
and then loosened, deepening to red and unsealing itself sash by sash, a leggy dishabille in lipstick. Somewhere on the other side of town, some bells begin to braise, to raise their brazen. Everything is about to change. So I think that's a nice poem to end with because, it, of course, it's a springtime poem, and it says we're fully now in spring. We're seeing all these, um, these beautiful uh, flowers coming out. Uh, we can celebrate. So everything is about to change, and let's hope it changes for the better. Let's hope. Let's fervently hope. Well, thanks for sharing those. And you can find much more, of course, at the, the website mappingliteraryutah.org. And the project is uh, is launched now, um, and uh, we've been talking with Utah poet laureate Paisley Rectal. Uh, you can find much more about Paisley Rectal at her website, uh, which is paisleyrectal.com. Paisley Rectal, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending the hour with us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and your energy. So thank you again. And uh, stay safe. Stay safe, everybody, in this uh, pandemic. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. Utah Public Radio and Bridgeland Audubon Society are excited to present the Grow Native for Birds Bookmark Art Contest. All of Utah's wild birds rely on native plants in the wild and in our parks and gardens. And this artist contest celebrates the beauty of this interdependence and connectedness. From now until September 4th, we'll be accepting submissions and then you'll get to vote on your favorite design. The winning design will be printed on an educational bookmark that will be distributed to Utah libraries, local fourth graders, and online available for anyone to view and download. For more details, go to upr.org. And to submit, just send your submissions to katie.swain at usu.edu. Celebrate nature and art.